This episode is brought to you by Gen Next Wealth, a fee-only financial planning and investment firm that specializes in working with minority families, helping them bring clarity, harmony, and focus to their finances. This month, Minority Money Podcast and Gen Next Wealth are partnering up to help two families with a free estate plan. That's right, completely free. You can enter one of two ways to get your free estate plan. First, by going to Minority Money Podcast slash giveaway. That's Minority Money Podcast slash giveaway. Or by sharing the Minority Money page on any of your social media platforms. And be sure to tag us. You will have until May 31st to enter into the contest. The winners will be announced the second week of June. Now, let's get back to the show. Hey there. I'm Emlyn Miles Mattingly, your host for the Minority Money Podcast. I'm glad you're here. You know why? Because this is the place you can come to get your weekly finance, family, and fitness motivation, not only to experience success in those areas for yourself, but also to help others in our community achieve greatness too. Super happy that you're on the show with me. So let's jump right in. Welcome to the Minority Money Podcast. I am your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly, founder and president of Gen Next Wealth a fee-only financial planning and investment firm. So today we are right back in it and we don't want to delay too much. I'm excited to have this guest on. We've interacted on Twitter. I have two of his books that he sent to me. Very honored to have those books and can't wait to dig into them. So without further ado, today we're going to be joined by Dr. Daniel Crosby. Welcome to the show. Hey man, my pleasure. Great to see you. Thanks for coming back on. I know we had some technical difficulties last time we tried to record, but I think we'll be fine today. And I'm excited about this. So we're going to talk about behavioral finance from the last time we spoke to now. I've been able to follow you more and kind of see some of the TED Talks that you've done. And you're kind of like a rock star, man. I appreciate it. I've done three TED Talks. Every TED Talk I've done has been less popular than the one before. So I'm like an aging, diminishing rock star, maybe. Rockstar is a rock star, man. If you wouldn't mind giving the guests a little background about yourself before we get into yeah. this. So I'm the chief behavioral officer at Brinker Capital. We're an asset manager based outside of Philadelphia, even though I live in the dirty South, which is my home. So yeah, I am a psychologist by education. So trained to be a clinical psychologist, just like a normal shrink, but being the son of an advisor, I found myself into this crazy world of behavioral finance about 12 years ago uh, and really just kind of fell in love with the intersection of mind and markets and feel blessed that I get to help advisors, provide advisors with training tools and technology to help their clients make good decisions about their money. Yeah, it's so important, like where your mind meets your money. I don't think it's talked about enough how we get in our own way, <laughs> just mentally speaking, like we get in our own way and how to navigate those feelings. So with that being said, today we're going to talk about behavioral finance and why not to panic. And the first question I have for you, Daniel, is why shouldn't investors panic when there's market turmoil in the market? Well, if investors could panic with any precision, then maybe they should. But the history of panic suggests that panicking doesn't do any good. So let me cite a piece of research that I've been talking about a lot lately. I quoted this in The Laws of Wealth. There's research that was done by Meyer Statman. He looked at panic, effectively. He looked at 19 different countries, and he looked at how active people were in managing their own portfolios. Like, how much were they meddling with it or changing? 
their allocations. And he found that the more active people were in every single country he studied, the more active people were, the worse they tended to do. And so people have this impulse at a time like this, when there's a lot in the news and there's a lot of volatility in the market to want to try and do something. But the history of trying to do something has not been very kind. William Sharp won a Nobel Prize for his research into the same found that people needed to get their decisions right at least 82% of the time to match doing nothing. So 82% precision about something that is enormously complicated, not easy to do. And that's just to match doing nothing, like just setting it and forgetting it, going about your business, watching Korean baseball, or whatever we do for fun in the new COVID-19 world. So yeah, there's just not anything to suggest that panic or being very active is beneficial for investors. The crazy thing is it's almost counterintuitive for our brains to think that doing nothing is going to be better. You mind talking about that a little bit? Like, why is it so hard for us to do nothing? Well, yeah, I talk about this concept. I called it Wall Street Bizarro World in the Laws of Wealth, which is why one of the reasons that makes it so hard to be a good investor is that the rules of good investing are inverted from the rules of everyday life, right? So if you want to be stronger, you lift more weights. If you want to be thinner, you run more miles. Like we know that if we want to progress, we do more, right? But yet we know that if you want to make a lot of money, you just do nothing, right? So it's this weird paradox that elsewhere in life, doing more gets you more, but in the market, doing less gets you more. And we can't quite make that switch because it's flipped from the rest of life and how life works. You're good at this, talking about this behavioral finance stuff. You got it. It just makes sense when you say it like that. It's very easy to understand. Can you talk about like the biology, the psychology, the physiology of investment decision-making? Yeah. So one of the things that I wanted to do in, in The Behavioral Investor my latest book was to have it be a comprehensive look at how we make decisions. And so the psychology, I think, is fairly well-trodden territory. A lot of the stuff I looked at was just how your body, like just even how physically you're not wired to make good investment decisions. So your brain, for instance, your brain is over 200,000 years old. Like it hasn't had a substantial upgrade in 200,000 years. And our brains are wired for immediacy. Our brains are wired for certainty. And our brains are wired to react. Being a successful investor requires dealing with uncertainty, long-termism, and inaction. So in a hundred different ways, we have brains and bodies that are wired to survive on the African savanna, right? We have brains and bodies made effectively to keep us from physical harm. And now we live in this world where everybody lives to be 100 years old. You go to grad school, so you don't start working until you're 25 or 30. You got 30 or 35 years to make all the money you need to live another 30 or 35 years in retirement. And like this is stuff culturally that we have never had to deal with in the history of humankind and that we are profoundly miswired. So it's very, very tricky. Yeah, that's crazy. Okay, so we're talking basically we haven't had, just for a simple term so everybody knows it, we haven't had an update in that many years to the way that we think and the way that we're wired. As we know, you know, everyone has a cell phone or almost everyone has a cell phone. And you know how your phone starts working when you don't get the update. It starts slowing down. It starts, some of the apps don't work. Maybe you have to uninstall it. And there's all kinds of these things that we're genetically 
wired to do to survive. And now you're saying that everything is going to make us a successful investor is opposite of what's going to keep us alive. Yeah, I mean, effectively, because you you think about something like we are two and a half times as upset about a loss as we are happy about a comparably sized gain. So like bad news is far stickier than good news. But if you think about this, and why are we so wired for pessimism? Why are we so wired to hang on to bad news? If you see something in your path and you jump, it looks like a snake, you jump and you get out of the way because you're freaked out and it's just a stick, like nothing lost, right? Maybe you look silly, you look dumb for a minute, but like, hey, you live to fight another day. If you see something in your path and you don't jump and it is a snake, you're dead. That's a mistake you only get to make once back when life was nasty, brutish, and short. And so we are wired to be very, very vigilant for danger and not really hang on to optimism very much. Well, investors are the ultimate optimist. Good investor is someone who an investment is basically voting with your money that the future will look better than the present. Like, I'm going to put my money here because I think tomorrow is going to look better than today. And so we're profoundly wired for pessimism when being a great investor requires a great deal of optimism. This is good. This is real good stuff, man. Why is it so important for people to work with advisors? So the research on advisors, I cover this in chapter two of the laws of wealth. So the research on advisors is really fascinating. So There's a number of studies that suggest that people who work with advisors do better than those who don't. So there's studies by Morningstar, Vanguard, Texas, other places. Consistently, people with advisors do better than those who don't work with advisors. Something called the Canadian Value of Advice Report tried to put a number on this. They found that people who had a long-term relationship with an advisor had 2.7 times the wealth of those who did not. So there's quite a bit of research to suggest that there's some dollars and cents value to working with a financial advisor. But here's where it's tricky. Again, it's not for the reasons why most people think. So when retail investors, when mom and pop investors are interviewed and you ask them, why should you work with a financial advisor? They would go, well, this advisor is like, the Warren Buffett of my hometown and they're going to pick good stocks for me. And because I'm in good stocks, that's like off like a rocket ship because they're like a good stock picker. Well, the reality is that the reason why folks with advisors tend to do better because the advisors at four or five critical junctures in their life, the advisor keeps them from a stupid mistake. And this is just like right now, we're talking in the throes of the COVID-19 crisis. This is like Advisors Super Bowl. This is where advisors are adding mad, mad value. Whereas, like for much of the last 10 years, it was easy to not need an advisor because it was just kind of like up and to the right for a very long time with a couple of blips in there. But this is when advisors add the most value to keep people from doing something cataclysmic, from doing something dumb at a time when everything's scary. So, the research shows two things, three things even. People who work with financial professionals do better than those who don't on average. The benefits are not only financial. People who work with advisors are also happier. They report generally higher quality of life. They report greater preparedness, greater peace of mind. So I think there's some holistic benefits that come from working with an advisor. 
because money is so central to our lives and our concerns that if we can sort out our money issues, then a lot of other stuff falls in place. But the third thing is it's not for the reasons that most people think. So like we as an industry have some rebranding to do on how we add value because it's not through stock picking. It's through handholding and behavioral coaching. I think you're so right. And I think that goes back to the genetic or to the makeup of the human mind. We've always wanted to be social. And so I think when you have someone to talk to about something that's so important to you, I think this is just a natural human thing. Like you think about it even when we were back on the deserts of Africa or wherever people think we started. You think that there's a tribe of people or there's a group of people. They always have someone that is in the group that gives them advice. It's just the way that we've been genetically wired. We have someone that's a leader in different aspects, whether it's spiritual, whether it's to prepare young men to become young men. There's always a person that gives us advice in our life. And for us to not think that we need to have someone that gives us advice and about something that we are genetically wired to do the opposite of what is good for us doesn't make sense. So this is where I think it makes complete sense for us to start or for people to work with advisors that they can trust and some rebranding from the industry, as you said. But I think if we can do that, people that are working with advisors are going to have a much better investment experience. Yeah, well, and I think there's two things here. We just live in an age of specialization. So for the average person, working with an advisor beats trying to learn everything that an advisor knows on their own. You know, it's easier to just pay that advisor and access their knowledge than it is to try and become equally proficient just the same way that I don't make my own shoes, right? It pays to pay an expert. And then the second thing is, again, it goes back to this behavioral thing because people think like, well, I can trade for free on whatever, E-Trade or Robinhood. Well, yes, that's true. But what's tricky is that's almost to our detriment because the fewer barriers there are to financial decision-making, the easier it becomes for people to make bad decisions. And in fact, we have seen that trading behavior has ticked up dramatically as all these custodians have gone to offering free stuff. And so I think it can be problematic. I analogize it to nutrition. Like in 1993, the US started labeling everything, started labeling sodium fat calories on all your food. And since that time, we as a country, the obesity epidemic has doubled because knowing what to do and doing the right thing have almost nothing in common, right? Like when I'm walking through an airport back in the day when you could, when I'm walking through an airport and I eat a Cinnabon because I'm tired and stressed out, it's not because I think the Cinnabon is good for me. It's just like I don't have anyone to slap it out of my hand and I'm tired, right? So, so many people, you can get the information, right? You can read the books, you can trade for free. There's a lot that you can still do, but ultimately the best predictor of whether or not you do the right thing is whether or not you have someone there to slap the bad decision out of your hand. I love it, man. You're knocking these out. Let's talk about like investing during COVID-19 because there's been a lot of people that are being affected by this negatively, but I think there's some people that are positioned where they feel like they can take advantage of some of the market opportunities that are there. So what does it look like for someone to invest during this time? I think the first thing that people have to do is they have to revisit their plan and they have to revisit their purpose. And there's a couple of reasons why. One is there's so much uncertainty with coronavirus. The thing that's doubly damaging about it is that the uncertainty is pervasive. Like 
We're worried about our money. We're worried about our jobs. We're also worried about our grandma, right? Like we're worried about our health and the health of our family members. And so in times of all this uncertainty, it's nice to revisit something that's cohesive. It's nice to revisit a plan. And even though your plan never saw coronavirus in particular, your plan did see days like this. Your plan knew that there would be markets like this. It knew there would be drawdowns like this. Nothing we have seen so far in terms of the severity of the drawdowns has been at all out of the ordinary. Like, I mean, this is wholly consistent with stuff we've seen before. In fact, over the last 100 years, the U.S. has been in recession 20% of the time. Like one year in five, on average, we've been in recession, and yet we've had some really nice returns over that century. And so revisiting a plan is a source of comfort. Revisiting a plan helps to get you thinking in the right timelines as well. When we get stressed out, we get very myopic, right? The body marshals all of its resources to the here and now to get you ready to fight or flee. And revisiting that plan allows you to think again about a future, again, to think about the future. And it just gives you a roadmap of how to act. And so I'm just not going to be one to say, buy this, sell this during COVID-19. I'm going to say, revisit your plan. It's going to be a source of stability. It's going to be something for you to hold on to. And it's going to remind you of what your financial priorities were in peacetime. Like It makes no sense to be making big decisions during wartime. And so that's going to remind you where you really need to be. I love that analogy, the peace and the wartime. I like that because things are different under those two circumstances. Like when it's peace, you're going to have a little more clarity of mind. You'll have a little more time to make the decision. And then when we're talking about wartime, it's the, the decisions have much larger implications, especially if you make the wrong one. This reminds me of what you're talking about. You have to get the decisions 82% right during wartime, when if you do nothing, it's going to be easier. Well, to make matters worse, we lose 13% of our IQ in times of financial stress. And so we have least access to our cognitive processing capabilities at the very moment that we need them most. So those lessons out the door, right? Like some of those lessons that you should have and be applying, they're kind of gone when you need them most. The other thing to know is that emotion colors our perception of risk and reward. So you ask someone who's having a good day to explain, tell me about your childhood. And someone having a good day is going to go, oh, I loved ice cream and my family took me to the shore every summer, right? And someone having a bad day is going to tell you about being beat up and pick last at kickball and things like that. So the mood that we're in colors the way that we view risk and reward. And so someone in wartime, someone who's investing in a time of volatility sees danger everywhere colors their ability to make level-headed decisions. Thinking about this, kind of run through the clients that I talked to during when this stuff started happening six weeks ago. And I think about the conversations that we have and, and everything that you're bringing up makes complete sense now. And I think it's not only good for clients to hear this, but I think it's good for advisors because it takes us through the progressions of understanding why the clients may react this way. 
why the client, you know, what the client's thought process was in making this decision, why they're calling saying, hey, we need to take all of this out or what are we going to do? And it's just a natural human reaction. I think sometimes as advisors sitting in that seat, hearing the client say what they're saying, it just gives us a much more context. Even me personally, like right now, I'm getting a lot more context on why people feel the way they do. And I think when you're an advisor and this is what you do all the time, it's just what happens. Like even when we're running our Monte Carlo simulations, we've kind of, this is in there. We run it for this type of drawdown, as you were saying, for the coronavirus, but for any type of market drawdown. This happens just to be the time now it's coronavirus or COVID-19, whatever you want to call it. Man, this is incredible. Can you tell us a little bit about these books you've been mentioning throughout the show? We're definitely going to put a link to those, but talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. So the two books I would suggest that people start with, The Laws of Wealth is got my 10 commandments of investor behavior in it, right? It's like somebody asked me, if you had to boil it down to just a handful or two handfuls of things, what would it be? That was my answer. It was a great exercise to just sort of say, what are the rules of making money? What are the rules of this game? And there's not many. That's the good news is if you can learn them and implement them, it's simple, but it's not easy. The behavioral investor was me wanting to fill this gap in talking about sort of the physiology of how we make decisions and just doing a really deep dive on everything that's going on internally as we're trying to navigate this process of making good decisions. So that's a little bit about the differences there. But both of them touch on sort of how to move forward. Both of them touch on some of the major behavioral biases that we're prone to. Everyone go buy them. Yeah, we're going to put a link to that. Yeah, we're definitely putting links to that in the show notes. There'll be links straight to Amazon so they can get those books. When you talk about the physiology, the book talks about it, but just touch on the physiology of what happens. That's just really interesting. Yeah. So the book goes into it in a lot of detail, but just as a general principle, we're just a lot softer than you think. Like we're a lot more fragile than you think. You know, I looked at studies about little things like hunger, just like someone being a little hungry. Like we're sat here talking, it's like 1133 Atlanta time. Look, it's just almost lunchtime. So you get someone like me right before lunch, they make way worse decisions. So like you think about this, you think about how one bad decision can wreck your financial life. Like one wrong turn can really land you in a hot water. And then you learn how sort of frail our bodies and minds are and the sort of nonsense that impinges on them. And I mean, it leaves you walking away with two things. I it leaves you walking away with really wanting to put some good systems and processes in place, really wanting to put some good procedures in place, and also really wanting help, like really wanting a coach and having sort of a second net beneath you while you make these sort of financial decisions. Because it was pretty stunning to me how something like what you watched on TV or how recently you ate could dramatically skew the way you view the world. We think of ourselves as being more in control than we actually are. It's sort of one of the takeaways from having researched the book. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So long story, less long, buy the books. This is going to help you as an investor. It's going to help you as an advisor. It's just something that you need to do. We need to quit thinking and start reading. Just that simple. Well, as you know, This is the Minority Money Podcast, where we are changing the complexion of wealth. And so what I wanted to know is what motivates you and inspires you to continue to grow and learn? I think what motivates and inspires me is I say that 
my biggest asset is like low grade anxiety. So like I get up every morning with my hair on fire. I wake up every morning just like not feeling quite as accomplished or knowledgeable as I should be. So I think that low grade anxiety, it seems funny to say, but I'm a big believer that strengths that become overextended can become weaknesses and even weaknesses can be turned into strengths. And so, yeah, I just have this sort of nagging level of anxiety that always makes me want to learn more and do more and be more. And honestly, I also have this real sense of the brevity of life at the risk of getting heavy here. You know, back in Roman times, a Roman general would have a great victory. They would parade them around the Colosseum and their chariots. But there was always someone, sort of a commoner in the back of the chariot, who would whisper in the general's ear as they were going around, memento mori, which effectively means remember you will die, like remember you're just a man. It's a fascinating juxtaposition that on this general's greatest day, right, day of his absolute prowess, he's got someone in the back reminding him to stay humble, reminding him that life isn't that long and that there's still way more to get done. I have an acute sense that I won't be here forever. There's a lot I want to learn. There's a lot I want to do. So I guess anxiety and an awareness of death. How's that for a bummer answer? I think it gives crystal clear insight into how your mind works because we're not going to live forever. And I think a lot of people live under that assumption. We know we're going to die, but they live like we're not going to die. So that was the first time I've heard something like that. So yeah, I like that. Do you think education plays a big part in wealth building? I think it plays a smaller part than most people think. And I know that's unpopular answer, but you know, you go back to my nutrition labels example, right? There is some education required to make sense of a nutrition label, right? Like, okay, this thing has 200 calories. Well, how many calories do I need? Like for my body type, there's this much protein and this much fat. Like what's the right combination of fat and protein to to be healthy? So there is like a base level of education that most people need. And that is certainly true. Finance, we need to be doing more, especially in underserved communities and people who grow up without examples. My wife's dad is an accountant. My dad is a financial advisor, like saving, not going into much debt, saving, doing all these good things that we've done as a family. Like it was second nature to us because we had great role models. That's not the case everywhere. So there's certainly more education that needs to be done and it's important. But if you look at what we call last mile problems, these are like behavioral problems that even when there's a cure, we can't get across the finish line. So diabetes is the seventh biggest cause of death in the US. And half of people who are diabetic don't follow their treatment protocols. So like we have medicine for diabetes. We figured it out. And still like people have trouble taking it that last mile. So education's half the battle, behavior's the other half. So yeah, is education important? Absolutely. It's necessary, but not sufficient for people to make great financial decisions. I love that. And as you've been on this journey, how has your family supported you? My family's everything. I mean, you know, if you want to go to my dad, my dad was the first person who said whatever 13 or 14 years ago when I said, hey, I love thinking about human behavior, but I don't think I want to do it in a medical setting anymore. Like, what should I do? My dad goes, well, hey, there's a ton of psychology in the work that I do. And I was like, what are you talking about? You're a numbers guy. Like, what do you know about psychology? And of course, I mean, 
my mindset has shifted pretty dramatically in the intervening decade or so. Yeah, so my dad has been a great career coach. You know, my wife and kids are just incredible. You know, the reason I get out of bed in the morning. So I'm super blessed to have an enormously supportive family. My wife is a full-time stay-at-home mom. And so there's no way I could do the things I do, writing, traveling, speaking, without a dedicated partner. So I'm very lucky to have the family that I have. If you would offer a piece of advice for our listeners, what would that be? Two pieces, automate and delegate. So automate, like figure out what you want to do, like, right? Like, so automate the process of taking that money out each month, automate the process of keeping your debt at reasonable level, automate the process of diversifying and rebalancing, and then delegate to an advisor. Like these are the two most powerful behavioral tricks. Like most people think they're going to read books like mine. They're going to become some sort of like chilled out Zen meditation master, and that's going to see them through the storms of investing. That's unnecessarily complicated. Like the things that you need to do, you need a good coach and you need a good system. And so like those two things will account for 99% of the behavioral errors you would ever commit. Thank you for your time, Daniel. I mean, every time we've talked, I've learned so much. I feel smarter when we're done talking. I always like talking to people that make me feel smarter. Like I learned something from them when we talk. So it's been great having you on. If people want to get more of Dr. Daniel Crosby, where can they find you at? What social medias are you active on and where can people find you? I'm really active on LinkedIn and Twitter at Daniel Crosby on Twitter, uh, Daniel Crosby PhD on LinkedIn, the Brinker Capital blog. If you just Google Brinker Capital blog has all of my writing there. I write all the things we've talked about today. And then of course, the books are a great other place to start. Yeah. Awesome, man. We will Definitely put the link to those books in the show notes so you'll be able to see both of them there, The Laws of Wealth and The Behavioral Investor. Once again, thank you for coming on, Daniel. This has been great. This is the Minority Money Podcast. I am your host, Emlyn Miles Battingly, where we are changing the complexion of wealth. Another great showdown, but it doesn't have to stop there. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast app you're listening on now and give it a good rating, would you? If you feel really connected to the podcast, which I hope you do, find our Facebook community, Minority Money VIP, to support and be supported by others just like you. And again, we're glad to have you. While this podcast is meant to inspire and motivate you to live your best life, it can't be your complete one-stop shop. I know, I know, that really sucks but I don't know anything about your specific situation. So please reach out to an attorney or CPA, or you can reach out to me, a financial planner, to help you with your specific situation. To get a hold of us, please reach us at fan at Minority Money Podcast. That's F-A-N at Minority Money Podcast, so we can get to know you there. Thanks for being here, and until next time, 